Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. If you've not been around the last few weeks, you'll know, uh, you won't know that we're going through uh, the book of Revelation. Ta-da! Um, and Revelation, for those who haven't been around, or um, for those who haven't come across this book before, is probably the strangest and most baffling book uh, in the Bible. Revelation is uh, full of dragons, scrolls with encrypted passwords, multicolored horses, bloodthirsty prostitutes, and a city wearing a dress. Dead to be some of the features. For the mathematicians amongst us, there'd be lots of sevens, a whole load of twelves, Lots of 12s times 12s with a bit of a 1,000 thrown in as well. And one big fat 666. It's a bit weird, essentially. And today's passage, um, as Abella just read for us, um, you'll notice there's not some of the super weirdest stuff, but there's still some stuff that you're probably scratching your head on about five or six details thinking, what is going on here? This is strange. And um, we, this, this letter that, um, that was read it, uh, is, is meant as a letter. The whole book of Revelation is a letter. Uh, but it starts off with these seven letters to seven actual churches uh, that existed uh, at the end of the first century in, in uh, ancient Turkey. Rich has helped us through the letters to Ephesus and Smyrna. And today we're on to a place called Pergamum. Um, and I'm going to just go over that, that letter, go through it bit by bit, and we're going to see what it's all about, hopefully. Um, now, before we dive in, though, just to say, I just noticed, uh, it's funny, we don't have all the time uh, in the whole world uh, in, in the morning. But at the end of the worship, I, I just got, I got the feeling, I don't know if I was off being, I think Dawn said it as well, that there was a, there's a, there was a weight to what was going on. And uh, some of us, Beth particularly, expressed something that I don't think was just for her, but for others, uh, that, you know what, it's, it, it's tough. Uh, sometimes and things happen and um, the world is tough the big wide world out there what's going on in the news and then you go to your life and what's going on in my life and how does this match with a loving God and how does this match with uh, other things we see in the Bible and it can be really confusing God why are you not doing this why are you doing this why is this happening and I think there are some really interesting comparison and contrast points in this talk to what we've seen already in the, the meeting. I'm going to kind of pick up where we left off in the worship. Uh, but I think more than anything, I think today, while there's some direct application, I think I'd like to present this to you as giving a little bit of context for you. If you're going through some stuff at the moment, bear with it. It's challenging what we've got today. There is some, there is some difficult things to hear today. There's some difficult things to understand but more than that, there's some easy things to understand that are just difficult to hear. But there is a context here that if we grasp hold of it in faith, it really helps us uh, to go through those things in faith and continue in our faith and ultimately uh, in love for Jesus. Okay, so let's dive in. With all that said, he's probably slightly, uh, well, what is he going to say? Well, you've just seen it all. It's a crazy passage, as you see. So uh, let's, let's go through it one bit at a time. Uh, oh, yes, that's right. There's a picture on the board that... If you get lost at any point during this message with the detail, the Balaams and the Balaks and the Satans and all that sort of stuff, keep your eye on the sword. Just trust me, we'll come back to you again, but keep your eyes on the sword. Let's go. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged... You got it, you're getting there already. Now, as uh, Rich, let's start with this bit. As Rich pointed out last week... <coughs> All of these letters uh, begin with a revelation about Jesus and about who Jesus is that sets the tone of what's to follow. And this is no exception at all, but as we saw from the sword and from this, it's a rather foreboding start to the letter. <laughs> Let's imagine 
you knew Jesus was coming around to give you a message uh, to your house. And you heard a knock on the door, and you open the door, and Jesus appears with a massive sword. And it's clearly not ceremonial. It's sharpened on both sides. This is a, a sword that has clearly been prepared for imminent use. <laughs> I think that would be reasonably scary. And that's the situation for the church in Pergamum as they hear the opening of this letter. <clears throat> and it reminds me, actually, of an almost identical uh, um, uh, occasion that is in the Old Testament of the Bible. I'm going to kind of mirror this passage with as we go along. It's found in Joshua chapter 5. Okay, so we're going to be in Pergamum in Revelation. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 5, and after a while we'll come to a guy called Balaam as well. So just three little places. You get lost, keep your eye on the... Good, okay, good, you got it. Joshua 5, Joshua is preparing for battle. He's the leader of the people of Israel. And uh, he's, the Israelites, they've crossed the Jordan River, and they're ready to attack this city called Jericho. And as Joshua prepares for the battle, he's kind of finalizing his plans, he has this unexpected encounter. Joshua 5.13 says this. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with sword in hand. There we are again. Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? Using that exact voice. Um, I think the church in Pergamon would be asking exactly the same question, maybe in the exact same voice, I don't, I don't know, but maybe in a different voice. They, they opened the, door to the, door to the, they opened the letter and opened the door to Jesus. He's there with his sword, just like Joshua. And you say, wait a minute, friend or foe, Jesus? I think they're looking at the sword. I think that's the thing. They're saying, that sword, are you going to use that for us? Or are you going to use that against us? Just a question, you know, before we put the kettle on. We'd like to know that sort of stuff. We, we, we laugh, but some of you might think, wait, 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 wait. I know where this is going here. Because, you know, we're talking about Jesus here. Uh, and we're talking about Jesus' church in Pergamon. The clue's kind of in the, the name. This is Jesus' church. Why on earth would Jesus go at his own people with a sword? I mean, come on. Jesus, Jesus died for his people. He forgave his people and forgives us. He's well and truly on team and he's well and truly on the people of Pergamum's team and he's well and truly on Joshua's team. I mean Joshua leads the people of God for goodness sake. He is obviously not going to attack us with a massive sword. We sung it earlier didn't we? He's our guardian. He's on my side. We'll just sing back the songs to him and our posture may be very much uh, like that of Joshua then. Look how Joshua speaks to this man. He, Joshua went up to him and demanded. <laughs> I don't know what voice he used, but he demanded. He demanded, are you friend or foe? Joshua, at this point in this story, does not know who the sword wielder is. We'll find out soon, and he will as well. We'll come back to that in a minute or two. But as far as Joshua is concerned, well, he's the leader of God's people. He's the leader of the people of Israel. So anyone with a sword needs to answer to him. He's the one making the demands. I think we can be just like that with Jesus. We see Jesus is powerful. We praise him for his power. Um, we praise him for his might. We know he he's carries a sword. We know he can have an edge to him. But what happens is we see him. We say, oh, great. We open the door. Jesus is with a sword. Here comes the cavalry. And Jesus, to be honest, about time too. You could have come a bit sooner. I've got some fights I'd like to enlist you in, actually. Come on, follow me. Uh, you get that sword. Make sure it's sharp. And uh, let's get to work, shall we? I think that's how we can often treat Jesus uh, when he comes with a sword. Is that a good strategy? Well, let's go back to Pergamum and Revelation to find out how this whole thing plays out. Verse 13. 
I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Okay, questions, questions, questions. Uh, yeah, just wheel back a, a moment for a second. I, I, you, you've got it right here. Keep your eye on the sword. We've got Satan. We've got Pergamum's is Satan's throne. We've got Antipas. There's questions here, okay? Uh, but we keep our eye on the Q. Yeah, we keep our eye on the sword. If we're getting a bit lost, well, what's happening, okay? So I'm going to go to the detail, but keep your eye on the sword. We'll come back to that in a minute. But let's ask some of these questions. And the big one here is he comes up twice. Satan appears. I think Rich mentioned this last week, that Satan appears quite regularly in the book of Revelation. Uh, and I think the key thing here is we need to get a grip on what, who is this guy? Who is, who is Satan? Um, well, Satan has lots of names in the Bible. He's sometimes called the evil one. He's sometimes called the devil. Uh, but let's put it as crudely as I possibly can. He is the chief baddie in the Bible. He is the end of game boss, right? For the computer gamers amongst us. Um, now, there's lots of mythology that surrounds Satan and maybe lots of questions that you might have about his trident and his horns or whether he has them or not. But I think it's best to leave them to one side, usually of always, but here particularly, because the clearest understanding we can get of Satan is simply to translate his name. The name Satan means the adversary or the enemy. And I think we understand a bit how he works when we start asking, well, what's he got to do with this city then? How is this city his city or his throne? The enemy city the, where the enemy dwells is what it says about Pergamum. Now, there's lots of opinions on this stuff. I'm not going to go into it hugely of why Pergamum is singled out as Satan's, uh, where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is. I think the most persuasive I've come across is Pergamum was one of the main centers of emperor worship in the uh, Roman Empire. I think that's the one I'd probably go with. But really, there's other opinions too. And whatever the reason, we know from this passage that this city was seen as a center of opposition to Jesus and behind this opposition, Jesus saw the work of the actual enemy, Satan. Now, per Pergamum, for whatever reason, may have been seen as a kind of center of uh, Satan's influence in Revelation 2. But we can't just think, oh, this was for them at that time. 1 John 2, 12, John tells us that the world around us is all under the control of the evil one. No, this is as relevant to us today as it was to this city then. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verse 12, this, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And Satan, essentially, is presented as the, the, the chief of all of these uh, evil powers. He's not flesh and blood, but he does, can and does have an effect on flesh and blood affairs. And where there's enemy activity against God or his church, or for that matter, to be honest, any human flourishing um, from, from like human beings or even just kind of circumstances, often behind that activity is presented in the Bible the influence of this spiritual enemy, Satan, and his dark powers. And again, just to be clear, before our minds start going off after horns and tridents and all of that sort of stuff, the Bible is incredibly vague about Satan and the details about him. Just to, if any of you is into kind of Lucifer and the bright morning star and all that, the backstory is not quite as laid out as some would have you believe. Apologies for that if you're really into that stuff, but it's just not there. It's really vague. But one thing is absolutely clear. This Satan, this enemy, is not a mythical bogeyman 
so that to like scare your kids to sleep, to stop them doing bad stuff. That's not what Satan is. He's very real, and he has a very real influence in our lives. And we see this in our passage today from this guy, Antipas. Again, as with most things in Revelation, Antipas has a whole kind of uh, uh, Netflix series after him of of mythology, like invented in about the 10th century AD, if you're into that sort of stuff. But all we know about this guy is from this verse, and it's all we need to know. He was killed for standing up for Jesus in this city. Presumably, I would imagine he was killed by the Roman authorities for refusing to bow the knee to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. That's how most went in the early church. But Jesus' point, whatever happened to him is, in this letter, is that, that, that just as he wasn't just in, in Rome, in Rome's city, he was in Satan's city, behind Antipas's actual human executioner, it was the one who, well, Jesus tells us in the Gospels, he comes to steal, and he comes to kill, and he comes to destroy, and he's the enemy, he's Satan. His work has an effect. I wonder how this is landing at the moment. Well, I need to say probably one more thing before we all start running for the hills at this point. It's a really important thing to throw in at this juncture. Um, when we think of this baddie goody thing in the Bible, it's really important we understand the, the, the mismatch between the baddie and the goody. If you see Satan versus God, like um, Superman versus General Zod, or Thor versus Thanos, you're going to get yourself into real trouble. Okay, Because what sometimes you present is these two immensely powerful characters uh, who are kind of battling each other, and we really hope the good one wins, but you know what? It's pretty close. I mean, Thanos has got that magic glove. After all, uh, anything could happen. Now, it's not like that here. No, Satan and the devil is always presented as significantly inferior to God. And the, the, the reason is obvious. It says in the Bible that God created all things. How many things did he create? He created all things. Now, Satan, whatever he is, is among all things. That means God, the creator, is up here, and all things are down here, and Satan's not somewhere in the middle. He's down here with all things. You got it? Okay, so there's a huge gulf here. This is not like a a kind of fair fight in any way. In fact, it's not really a a fight at all. And the book of Revelation, actually the whole book, graphically portrays the victory of God over all evil powers and how that plays out both in uh, early first century and also, uh, I think, going on from that point as well. But So we understand that. So the book of Revelation, the Bible portrays the work of Satan. He's, He's not on a level with God, but... As the book of Revelation, as you'll go on, tells us, he is real, he's serious, and if we don't take him seriously, he can do us great damage. So, come on, let's sum all this up, okay? This passage in the New Testament, then, paints a hot picture of the whole world as like this battlefield. And there's an enemy who's fighting behind the scenes against God and against his people. Got it? Is that... Yeah? Yeah, okay, I got some, some nods. Okay, Battlefield and enemy. I don't know what that brings us back to. That brings us back to our swords. Swords are to do with battles. They're to do with enemies. We've come loop around the loop again. Okay, remember the question then we were asking about the sword. You man with sword, Jesus, are you friend or foe? Are you going to use that sword for us or against us? Well, here we kind of are seeing an answer to that question. 
Why does Jesus have his sword at all? Why does he own a sword? Well, it's because he's got an enemy. And on this occasion, he's going into the enemy's stronghold, and the ultimate target for this sword is his enemy, and the church in Pergamum's enemy, and our enemy, it's Satan. Phew, he's using it for us, thank goodness. (laughs) Wait, well, hold on, hold on a second. Just as this sword has two sides to it, there is another side to this story as well. And let's read on and we will see uh, what that is. Verse 14, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some people among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, details, we've got Balak, we've got Balaam, we've got idols, food sacrifice, and we've got Nicolaitans. Okay, we'll come back to some of that. Not all of it, we'll come back to it. But again, keep your eye on the sword here, because if you keep your eye on the sword, this is a heart-stopping passage for the church in Pergamum. A minute ago, they said, phew, relief, it's, the sword's for us. And suddenly, it's looking like the opposite here is the case. Let's return to... And I'm jumping around a bit, but let's turn to Joshua again, because I think we see this exact situation now played out in the story of Joshua if we continue, um, if we continue from that story. Remember Joshua, he swaggered up to this man, he demanded, he's got this sword, friend or foe, remember that? Well, this is what happens next. What does the man reply? You friend or foe? Neither one. Neither one. Some, some Bible translators say, are you for us or against us? The answer is no in some. What? Neither one. He said, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Hmm. It's interesting. Revelation tells us who the commander of the Lord's army is. Any, any takers? Jesus. This is why I'm linking these passages. It's exactly the same person. If not exactly the same person, someone in exactly the same role in Joshua. At this, it says, going on, at this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I'm at your command, Joshua said. He's not making any demands anymore. Notice that. He's not demanding anything. I'm at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. I bet he did do as he was told. It's a fitting response. Listen. Jesus loves us. He really loves us. He cares for us. He died for us. He is gentle and he's compassionate and he's generous. But he's also the King of Kings. And he's also the Lord of Lords. He's the, li- the, he's the Lamb who died for the sins of the world. But he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We sing the song, don't we? He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. I love that song. I think it's a great song. It really helps me worship Jesus. But I think we need to be very careful with that line. It's true, but we need to be very careful with that line. He's not primarily fighting our battles. Are you on our side or on the other side? Which is it? No, neither. I'm fighting my battles. I'm the commander of heaven's armies here. Whatever our theological convictions, we have to be very careful in how we approach King Jesus. And if he approaches us with a sword, I'd encourage you not to come to any instant conclusions about that sword and definitely not to start barking orders at him. There's one posture that's correct, and it's one posture only, and it's the one that is adopted 
Strangely, by Joshua and also by John in the book of Revelation, and it's face down on the floor expressing humble obedience to the commander of heaven's armies. You see, our entitled Western arrogance affects our reading of all of these truths in the Scriptures. And it makes the most pressing question to God is, are you on my side or not, God? So it's a, it's a good question. I mean, it's a fair question. You say, yes, God is on my side. That's, when we sing those things, that's not wrong, but that's not the most pressing question. The most pressing question is always and will always be, am I on his side? He is the center of the entire universe. Who are we in our arrogance, in our total hubris, that we would think that God suddenly would revolve the whole world around me? He is not a hired hitman to help me to realize my dreams. He's the commander of heaven's armies. And Joshua starts by asking the first question, are you on my side? He ends up by asking the second, am I on your side, from face down on the floor? And the church in Pergamon have a very similar journey to go through in this letter. So as we now go to the details, I told you I would, we'll come to Balaam in a second, okay? Just because we have to jump around lots in this passage. But I'd really encourage you in your heart to adopt the same posture. We need the same posture. Do you have a category for Jesus coming to us in judgment and warning, even with a degree of threat about him? And are you able to listen to him, not in a spirit of what can you do for me, but in I'm your servant. What, what can I do? What must I do? Tell me, God. My heart's open to you. I know they'd be wrestling. They might be battling in your hearts now, but I'd really encourage you as we now go into the details and talk about Balaam and who is he and what's he got to do with Pergamum, we're also going to be talking about what's this got to do with us. And there's a challenge for all of us here coming. So, Balaam, in our journey around almost the entire Bible, let's go to Balaam. Now, <laughs> some of you know about Balaam, and there are some bits of his story that are even more strange than some things we've seen. I'm not even going to tell you. If you want to find out more, go to Numbers 22. You can knock yourself out, then come with the questions, okay? But I'll give you a brief summary of Balaam. Does anyone know what I'm talking about in that bit of the Balaam story? What's the weirdest bit of the Balaam story? Yes, I think a few of you got it. <laughs> Some others are thinking, what is it? Well, you read your Bible. Reading your Bible is always good. Um, okay, B Balaam is an Old Testament character. And he, he basically plots with the king of Moab. Moab is a neighboring uh, country to, to Israel. Well, Israel is not a country at this point, but it's right on the side of where Israel, the people of Israel were. And he plots with this king called Balak to, just as it says here, a trip up. Yes, it says how to trip up the people of Israel. Sorry, we were on the... The last one. There we go. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, to trip up the people of Israel. Um, and basically, Balaam's this prophet. He's a pagan prophet. And um, Balak wants to get him. He's, he's got a plan with this prophet. He wants to use him to curse Israel. In, a, in Balak's mind, whoever Balaam blesses gets blessed, and whoever he curses gets cursed. It's an interesting skill to have. Um, and Balak tries to re recruit him to curse Israel. And Balak's more than happy to do this because he's getting paid. Um, so he takes him on a mountain and they look down and Israel's all at the bottom of the mountain, loads of them. And Balaam goes to curse Israel, but he can't do it. He's, he, he can't say the words. And actually what comes out of his mouth is blessing for Israel. And he goes to four different places <laughs> and tries four times. And every time it's like, Curse, blessing, blessing. And you get to the end of Numbers 24 and you think, wow, this guy Balaam's all right. He must be a good guy. He must be with God and with his people. But actually, 
As we find out from other bits in the Old Testament, no, that's not what happened. What happens is plan A was foiled. The cursing plan was foiled. But Balaam and Balak then cook up a plan B. And we just zoom straight to the application of plan B, which is the beginning of Numbers 25. And this is what it says. While the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, <laughs> sounds like a kind of cul-de-sac in the middle of Bourneville, doesn't it? In Acacia Grove. <laughs> Some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with local Moabite women. This is where we go definitely back to Israel. Um, these women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. So the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. This all looks like it's just something that happened, but what you find out in the other passages is this is what is commonly called in spy literature a honey trap. Anyone into spy literature or spy films? It's a honey trap. It's a setup. It's a deliberate ploy to lead the people of Israel astray and cause their downfall. And if you know the story, you'll find out it very, very nearly works. Apparently, some of the church in Pergamum were falling for a very similar strategy And actually, you know what? The enemy's tactics, Satan's tactics, to trip up God's people are pretty much the same today and have been pretty much the same for all people of God throughout history. Let's just notice in a minute. Let's think about the tactics going on here. In both of the stories that we've looked at, Balaam and Pergamum, the devil has two lines of attack. He has two tactics. The first is the direct attack. The direct attack. I don't know. I don't know what kind of curses Balak was hoping that uh, Balaam would call down from heavens. Maybe fireballs from heaven, or uh, a deadly plague, or loads of snakes to go and attack all the Israelites. Okay, but I reckon he was after something pretty direct in all this. In Pergamum too. There's a direct attack. In the case of Antipas, you can't get much more direct than that. He dies. The guy's dead. He's he's assassinated. He's he's executed, sorry. And for us too, the the enemy's attacks can come like this to us, very direct. I think we should be kind of wary a little about putting all disasters that happen to us down to satanic attack. But we should be aware that that is possible. That's a possible reason behind things. Listen, sometimes uh, sickness, accidents, personal attacks, mental health problems, or mishaps are, guess what? They're sickness, accidents, personal attacks, mental health problems, or just mishaps. That's just what they are. They're just part of this fallen world we live in. doesn't make them any easier to handle. They're difficult, but we we work through those things in in a pretty much a natural way. But sometimes those things are deliberate, calculated assaults of a real spiritual enemy who's out to get us and out to get our God. He's an invisible power, but has significant influence in the world. Listen to what Beth said earlier. I mean, um, this, this thing that weekend, I know, know a bit about the, the story. Beth's still here. She, she uh, know a bit about that story, but you, you, you kind of go and you see a friend die. You go to, to kind of help, and you get a car crashes into you. At times like that, you start asking questions. You say, what is going on here? Again, might be coincidence, could be. I've had a week of a lot of these strange coincidences, and I've come to some very firm conclusions about what's going on. I, th- I think there are times when the battle comes close, and I think the battle is coming really... I felt that this week, and I won't go into detail, but in very similar ways. Sometimes these are the results of the, the enemy. We've got to be real about these things. We are not unaware of his schemes, it says in, the, in Corinthians. And yes, you know what? There are real casualties in this battle. Antipas was an actual casualty. This is serious stuff. 
But even as I say it's serious, again, I want to be careful in case the wrong kind of fear comes in here. This does not mean the enemy can do whatever he wants. You might say, well, he did to Antipas. I mean, the guy's dead. I mean, what, what more could he do? This is awful. But as you read on in Revelation again, what you find in this story is that Antipas is not the victim in this story. But he died. No. Antipas is the hero in this story. Summary of Revelation. If you can't hear the rest of our talks, here it is. Jesus wins. That's the title. If I had a subheading, it would be, and the martyrs aren't close behind. That's Revelation. Jesus wins. The martyrs win too. The martyrs are the heroes. They gave their life. And the devil couldn't rob what was most important from them. He just can't do it. The enemy is powerful. He shouldn't be underestimated. But he cannot decide our ultimate destiny. He can't rob us of the eternal life that Jesus gives. Well, he can't do it directly anyway. Which is why I think the second line of attack is even more deadly. Because he attacks in a direct way, but he also does the sneak attack as well. And we see it in both passages. And the sneak attack is he seduces us to sin. And like Balaam and Balak did to the Israelites, and like these false teachers are doing in Pergamum, the devil often attacks us by exploiting our desires and leading us to follow them into active disobedience to what God has said. And this is a real problem for us. This is an attack for two reasons. Firstly, it's a threat to us because sin harms us. There's this kind of thought going around, I've entertained it for many years of my life, that sins are those really interesting, exciting things that for some reason God makes a test of me not doing. You just don't do the, the really cool stuff because I've just said, you know, oh, all right then, I won't do it, I should do the right thing, but it'd be great. I, the best of both worlds would be to sin and still be friends with God. That would be the way I would often have looked at things. That's not it at all. Sin is poison. That's what it is. It's poison. It harms us. It diminishes us. It degrades us. If someone tricks you into drinking poison, that is bad for you. That's the first reason this is bad. But sin is much worse than that, according to this story. Sin is bad enough on its own, but it's where it leads to that's the real problem. Look at these Israelites. They start off by doing things that you shouldn't be doing. They're having these sexual relations with these Moabite women. Where do they end that story? They're worshipping Moabites' gods. They've abandoned God altogether. And this is not just something that happened in the Bible. I remember a conversation a number of years ago with someone very, very close to me. And this friend of mine, he was a, a Christian. He would call himself a Christian. He would say he believed in God. He believed in Jesus' life, death, resurrection. He, went, he was part of a church. He was on Jesus' side. But for my friend, and he was well aware of this, he was doing things that Jesus, it seemed, didn't really approve of. He knew this. And I knew this, and we were having a conversation about it. And I remember saying to him, I said, look, I think you just need to be really careful because at the moment you think you're deciding what you believe, but if you're not careful, your actions will decide what you believe. I don't know if I articulated myself clearly to my friend, but what I kind of meant was this, that often we see our beliefs and actions working in this way, that we have certain beliefs that we come to in our heads and maybe in our hearts, and we come to them rationally, and we, we think about it, and we come to a resolved conclusion, and those are my beliefs. And then we separate our actions and say, and our actions stem from our beliefs. They come from our beliefs. And obviously, we could act in a way against our beliefs, and we'll probably feel a bit guilty, but that's not going to affect our beliefs. The actions come from beliefs. 
The thing is, it can work the opposite way too. If we act in certain ways, we're, we're sneaky as people. What we end up doing eventually is going back to our beliefs and adapting our beliefs to justify the things that we really like doing. I don't know if anyone can think of any times you've done that before, but that's just, that's, that's, humans do this. That's what happened to my friend. Very soon after, he was no longer going to church, no longer calling himself a Christian, no longer following Jesus' teaching in any way. Very soon after that conversation. He didn't encounter a massive objection to his faith. He didn't meet some giant calamity, uh, a direct attack of the devil that made him wonder if God was really there or really cared. No, he was seduced into a way of living and then he became so keen on that way of living that he adapted his beliefs to allow him to keep living that way and Jesus was gone. That's what Balaam and Balak's scheme was for the Israelites and that was what people were doing in Pergamum as well. Tragically, he was the first of many many friends who've done exactly the same thing. Some who were sitting in this room two years ago. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. That's the path that Satan wants to lead us down. Oh, it's just a little thing. You're doing really well on everything else. God, I don't mind that thing. You've got this under control. Just do it once in a while. It's fine. Well, Jesus, you know what? Jesus knows exactly where it's leading. It's leading to death. And he loves us too much to let us sleepwalk into disaster without a fight. Even if it means that he's going to bring the fight directly to us. Please understand as we go through Revelation, there are not two Jesuses in the Bible. The Jesus who walked the streets of Galilee and healed everyone he did and talked to the little children. It's lovely. And then Revelation, the Jesus who comes with a sword. Well, there's two Jesuses, aren't there? No, no. There's one Jesus in the Bible. And his love for us is the same in both pictures. Actually, even when it looks like Jesus is fighting against us, do you know what? He's actually fighting for us. He's fighting for our very souls. He's fighting, fighting to rescue us from where our foolishness will take us. Joel read the passage earlier about the shepherd who goes after the one and leaves the 99. What happens if that sheep doesn't want to come back? What happens if the shepherd sees that he's about to fall off a cliff? You know what? I don't think the shepherd minds at all getting out his crook and going, right, we're going to have a conversation right here. I'm getting you back one way or another. That's our shepherd. He's not going to let us just run off a cliff from our own foolishness and stupidity. But there is a possibility here. I say that. In this passage, there is a possibility that's given to us that surely has to be taken seriously, that we could go too far and we could end up on the wrong side of this fight entirely and then the sword becomes very, very bad news for us indeed. But, as with all these letters, as we close, it doesn't just have warnings. It does have warnings and challenges. There's a reward if we do listen to him. And it's right at the end. Okay, if we'll repent, if we fall face down and say, God, I'm at your command. What do you want your servant to do? There is a reward for us here. And it's in verse 17. I'll read it to you. And you can scratch your heads because we've only got two minutes left. Uh, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. And definitely not the person who's preaching. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I, I have some understanding here, but even if I had another half an hour, which I definitely don't, I don't think I can join all the dots for you here. So I'm just going to tell you the end of my study. This is what I think they're on about here. These are the promises of God, of rewards for us if we listen to Jesus here. Some of them are for this life. If we repent, if we listen to Jesus, he promises to give us all the resources that we need to live each day righteously. He promises to wash away all our sins and our shame and and our guilt from what we've done wrong. He promises that we can know Jesus' protection available to us from all of the enemy's attacks. But there's more than that. There's rewards also for the future too. He promises us that on the day, on that day when we die, we'll get a not guilty verdict in the judgment room of heaven, in the court of heaven. He promises that on that day we'll walk into an eternal life where we can know Jesus' presence and his life forever. Those are the rewards open to us. And if you want to know how it links with that, got some fat books at the office, come by and I'll show you them, okay? <laughs> I think I can say that with some, some integrity, seeing as I think most of us would know the things I've just said are taught far more clearly in other passages in the Bible, but they're definitely rewards promised to us from Jesus. Listen, in Revelation, Jesus is kind of scary. No other way to put it. He's fierce and he's focused, but he's still full of love for his people. He loves us so much, he won't give us out without, up without a fight. Even if that means sometimes he has to threaten to bring that fight to us. I know this could throw up all sorts of questions. And if you want to talk to me about those questions, please feel absolutely free. I'd love to chat about these things. But I, I'd like to preface every conversation I have about questions with this with whatever the questions, whatever the conversation, please don't miss out on the very, very clear teaching of this passage. Do not mess around with sin. There we go. That's what it says. Don't compromise, even in little ways you think you can get away with. And if you're doing those things already, repent. Say sorry and put it right. We need to recognize we have an enemy and we're in a battle. And that Jesus is even more committed to that battle than we are. Let's please ensure we line up on the right side of that battle so we don't find ourselves in this terrible position where Jesus' sword is actually coming for us. Let's pray.